right, we're returning to the Ten Guardians. These are the guidelines that God put in place in order to help humanity live in freedom. Uh, before he introduced his Ten Laws, his Ten Commandments, we refer to them as Ten Guardians, he said, I am the one who took you out of bondage. I made you a free people. Essentially, the inference is, I'm the one who made you free. I'm the one who can show you how to stay free, live like this. And then he laid out 10 guides, 10 guardrails, that if humanity lived by these 10 guardians, then we would have heaven on earth. Amen. We would have the government of God at work in the midst of men. So keep in mind that God not only said in the old covenant, I have given you these guidelines to keep you free. In the New Testament, he says to us, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Now, in context, the reference there is, do not go back under the law. Instead, live under grace. And so, we do not accept these 10 commandments as harsh rules, law, that says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. We receive them more as guidelines because we rely not on living the law, but on living in the grace of God. We have Christ in us, and he knows exactly how to live according to God's guidelines. So as Christ is in us, he is our hope, and it is because of him that we can pursue all of these guidelines with gusto. Amen? Amen. So, we're looking at uh, commandment eight, guardian number eight, respect for property. It says literally, Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. I think it's highly significant that stealing is put on the exact same status as murder, as adultery. Now, in human thinking, these are different levels of sin. But in godly thinking, these are the 10 guidelines for living safely and living happily. So we find stealing put on the same level as murder. Now, the kind of stealing that takes place could be forcible. That would be uh, robbery. It could be without force, that would be burglary, theft of any kind, actually. But it could also be fraud or embezzlement. Amen? There is a uh, financial crime, a crime of property, approximately every two seconds. So last minute, there were 30 crimes of property that took place. Even as I'm speaking, more property crime is taking place, obviously, 
We need lots of human law to protect the things we have from those who would try to take those things away from us. Amen? Amen. So how did we, humanity, get so far away from the biblical expression of what's right, from respect for property? I think we need to be aware of two key verses that help us to shape and understanding, and of course it takes more than these two, but I would give you Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything actually belongs to God. That's the first understanding. Second understanding, Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens even the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. That is to say, God bestows stewardship on mankind. He gives them his planet, not to own, but as he remains the owner he gives the oversight, the stewardship to men to watch over the things on the planet and the planet itself. So he entrusts his things to men. It is a temporary stewardship. It will all return to him one day. And in the meantime, we hold title by virtue of investing time, talent, and treasure. Amen. So, if you want to understand the mind of God, you have to look apart from what you see in society. You have to look into the Word of God, and there is a key understanding. I'm going to read it to you from Numbers chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Speak to the children of Israel when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. So as you study the word of God, you understand there are no God-made prisons. There is restitution, and that's what we just read. There is retribution. Retribution belongs to God and God only. Under human law, that which belongs to God, <clears throat> retribution transfers to the state. So the state can have capital crimes or crimes that require retribution. Are you with me? Everything else in God's justice system is restitution that is pay back plus. 
pay back plus. So when we look at the human social system, the justice system, retribution is still outside of man's hands. You are not allowed to take vengeance. On the other hand, restitution is utterly ignored. God and victim are both denied. That is to say, we convict somebody of burglary or theft, white collar theft or just plain theft, whatever the case is, and we send them to prison. There's no restitution. There's no payback. There's no penalty. There are those who commit white crimes like fraud and embezzlement who go off to prison, serve their term, come out of prison, and go off to some place where they can't be extradited, and they're wealthy. Amen? It's like something is amiss in the justice system in the world. So God and uh, victim are denied. If you want to get justice at all, you don't stay in the criminal justice system. You have to go to the civil courts. Within the criminal justice system, sometimes there is victim compensation. However, that compensation comes from a state fund which is subsidized by your taxes and mine, which means, somebody help me here, we have to subsidize the crooks. Something is wrong with the system. Amen? Amen. It's like, I don't want to be compelled to subsidize criminals. Amen? So we have what we call prison. God doesn't. The only prison that I can imagine from Scripture is Tartarus, which is a place where angels... Uh, are chained uh, until their final destination. Amen? So, anyway, our, our so-called correctional centers are not correctional centers. They are actually centers for violence, racism, and Islamic jihad. That is to say, many people who go to prison get converted to the Muslim faith in prison. Why? <laughs> because every prison chaplain in America has to believe in Sharia law. Insanity. Utter insanity. Anyway, few Muslims get sent to prison. Many come out of prison. They have been converted while in that so-called correctional institution. In any event, God doesn't have such places. He doesn't have prisons. God has retribution, capital punishment, and restitution, payback with a penalty. Under God's system, the, the uh, criminal is accountable to pay the victim is restored, and you and I don't have to subsidize criminal activity. Amen. God's got a much better system. Now, he does have a word for the church, and it comes in the book of Romans. He says in 2.21, You therefore 
who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? So we're now looking at the word steal. So let's just give it some definition. To steal something is to take that which is not your own as your own. That is to say, to take someone else's thing and make it your thing. Scripture doesn't talk about the means of moving it from them to you. And as we look at things here in America, there could be fraud, there could be embezzlement, not just forcible thefts, you know, like such as robberies and such, but there could be fraud and embezzlement and such. Here's the truth. You can actually steal legally in America. Understand that legality and morality are not the same. And it is wrong to take what belongs to someone else to, your, to you. But in America, there are legal ways to do that, like predatory lending. Somebody help me here. Okay? We have people in our church who are victims of predatory lending. That's why they have three jobs. Amen? Because they have been robbed legally. Amen? So taking something that's not yours, that's stealing. Now, your average churchgoer, me, you, us, we would never, ever take something from another person. It's just wrong. We know it, and we wouldn't do it. Herein is the problem, though, that not enough people have taken God seriously, and they don't distinguish that taking something from a nameless group like the government, a corporation, the place where you work, etc., it's like that is stealing also. Amen? Before I was saved, um, I took liberties when it came to tax season. Okay? I did not render to Caesar everything that, rent, that Caesar was supposed to get. After I got saved, I was faced with the quandary of having to give to Caesar what was his. So Jesus said, do it, Walter. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Amen? And so, with reluctance, I do give Caesar everything he deserves, not one cent more, mind you. Okay, if there's a legal way not to give it to him, he's not getting it from me because he will squander it and spend it on evil things. Amen. Nevertheless, because Jesus said I must, then I have to pray for the infernal revenue, I mean the internal revenue people uh, every April 15th and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, amen? Otherwise, I am stealing from Uncle Sam. Somebody help me here. Stealing from a corporation, a nameless uh, entity, stealing from a chain store, etc. come on, that's, like, still wrong, and yet overlooked 
by too many. So I want us to look at four important facts. Number one, we look to Proverbs 6, pardon me, Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. That is to say, God sees it all. You can hide it from men. You cannot hide it from God. He sees it all. That's number one. God sees it. Number two, we look at Ephesians 6, 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Although you can't tell from this, the context is in your work life. And so Colossians 3.25, in a parallel passage, adds this fact, and with God there is no partiality. No partiality, meaning whether you are the employer or the employee, you do what's right. Employers can steal from their employees by abusing them. Employees can be stealing from their employers by not giving them an honest day's work. Amen. Important fact number three. We turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 5, verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. By the way, a cubit is the distance from your elbow to your fingertip, approximately a foot and a half. So its length is 20 cubits, its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll. And every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and its stones. So we have guardrail number eight, respect for property, thou shalt not steal. Next week, guardrail number nine is thou shalt not commit perjury. There will be no false witness. It has to do, of course, with lying. Amen? So what did we just read? There is a special curse released on those who steal and perjure, and it is on their house. This would explain why some homes, some families can never seem to get free from the past. Fourth important point, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit 
the kingdom of God. Fourth important point, there are no thieves in heaven. Wow. There are no thieves in heaven. We must be watchful that we are never taking what is not ours to ourselves in any way, shape, or form. What do we do? We look to God's economy. How does God manage his affairs? That would be Leviticus 6, verse 4. Then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely. That is to say, in God's plan, if I have something that I wasn't supposed to have, but I do indeed have it now because I took it to myself, I must get it back where it belongs. Restitution is God's plan, not punishment. Somebody help me here. Make it right. Restitution. He shall restore its full value and add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. That is to say, we read earlier in another verse, you've got to make sure it goes back where it belongs. That isn't always possible if there is not a direct uh, tie between the thing and a given person. So you can try to get it back to a family. If there's no family to get it back to, God says you still have to give it back. Give it to the priest. That is to say, subsidize the work of God. Amen? So understand the intent of this particular guardian. It goes much deeper than protecting personal property, much deeper than teaching us to respect the property of others. It is in actuality, I think, a total contrast between two ways of living, taking or giving. The world has takers and the world has givers. And when we come to faith in God and follow his way, he translates us, he changes us, he transforms us. And if we were a taker, we, uh, we don't stay a taker, we turn into a giver. Are you with me? That's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He is describing his, his uh, great passage on put off the old man and put on the new man. Get rid of what was your life and take on the life of Christ. He says in Ephesians 4.28, And let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Amen. So we are repeatedly uh, uh, shown here in Scripture the virtue of giving. Repeatedly 
warned against the opposite of taking kind of a thing. So Acts 20, verse 35. This is a statement Jesus made of which Paul is reminding us. And Paul is writing and says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen. It's like if you're not saved, that is probably not believable. If you are saved, it is a truth that helps to govern our lives. That is to say, we understand that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So I can tell you that before I was saved, I was not a thief, but I was a cheapskate. Okay? I could squeeze a nickel until the buffalo screamed. Okay, if we were going out for coffee, when we got to the cash register, my hand would stay in my pocket longer than yours. So I wasn't per se a thief, but I was indeed a cheapskate. Hello? But then I met God. And he infused me with a generous spirit. Amen? And so, uh, you know, it's like just my wife and I love to give. We love to give. Amen? I was thinking the other day, and I haven't acted on it, and I was just repenting in the back room there because I had the thought and meant to act on it and forgot to act on it. And that action was that I said to my wife, we got to send a thousand bucks to to such and such because there's persecuted believers there that are starving. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's like that's wrong. It's like I'm eating well. Never mind. It's like my point my point is that when you become a believer, then you understand Jesus' teaching that wherever your treasure is. That's where your heart will be. Wherever you put your heart, that is where your treasure will follow. It's like, that's the way of heaven. We become a generous people when we get saved. Amen? And so all in all, we are mindful of this. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We turn from stuff to people, from stuff to relationships. We, we stop doing things the way we used to. We start doing things the way God would have us do them. Amen? I was a, I was a very young Christian, and uh, we had a lot of kids and not a lot of money and I was in two guys from Harrison, and I was standing in the aisle. I was 
absolutely alone. And one of the games that we had at our home for our children had little pucks. And we were missing a puck. So we couldn't play the game because of one little thing. Just anyway, so I'm standing in two guys from Harrison, and we used to, every quarter, every three months, Maureen and I would say, okay, our entertainment budget allows us to purchase another game this month. So every three months, we would go to two guys to buy a game, and I'm standing there, and I heard an audible voice say something. The game with the pucks was broken open on the shelf. The cellophane was off it, the cardboard was off it, and the puck was staring me in the face. I heard an audible voice say, take it, no one will ever know. Somebody help me here. I'm telling you, it was an audible voice. I snapped around to see who said that and how they knew what I was thinking. Anyway, obviously, I had to reject the thought, take the thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and leave the puck where it was. Amen. We meet God and he changes us. His guardians become the inner rules. They are written on the tablets of our heart. We don't live under the law. We live under the grace of God. And God in us is able to keep every one of these things. Therefore, when Jesus says, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Come on, I got pucks coming out my ears. <laughs> Amen. It's like, let's pray and then we'll turn to communion. Father, Thank you that you have taught us and are teaching us and will teach us contentment with who we are, with what we have, with where it's at, knowing that none of that is at the end of its story, that you will continue to lead us and guide us, take us over, take us through, take us beyond. We're thankful, Father for the contentment that's growing in us, for the recognition of your divine provision that all of our needs are indeed met and will be met today and tomorrow and that you are making us a generous spirit by causing your spirit of generosity to flourish within. Father, thank you that we as a people here in the Church of Grace and Peace have, have a church generosity that reaches around 
the world, that we do go above and beyond, and for that we thank you, because only you have made it possible. We thank you that that spirit of generosity is moving through us corporately, but also individually, that in each home we are becoming a more generous people, because your provision is more than enough. So, Father, as we move toward communion, let these things grow in us. Contentment, thankfulness for your provision, and generosity toward those around us. Church, I am moving now toward communion, and in a moment we'll be taking that. So if you would start to get your elements ready, the original... Passover, of course, came centuries ago, millennia ago, and when it came, death had to pass by because the blood of God's lamb was put on the entrance to the household. The whole family was saved because the blood was on the house. We are told in Scripture in Psalm 105, verse 37, that as you took your people out, there was not one feeble one among them. They took the lamb and ingested it. This is my body, said Jesus. This is my blood. They took the lamb and they were healed. Scripture tells us that when they left Egypt, they plundered Egypt. They went forth with great wealth. So in that first Passover, you, God, were setting people free from bondage under Pharaoh, where they had poor health and no wealth, and setting them free that they were suddenly wealthy, healthy, and free. For centuries, for millennia, your people kept the feast of Passover. And during that Passover celebration, there were four cups that were taken at the meal. First was the cup of sanctification. Second was the cup of affliction. Third was the cup of redemption. And fourthly, there was the cup of consummation. Jesus said, as he was leaving, I will not take this meal again until everything is in place. The fourth cup was not taken at the Last Supper. What was taken was the third cup. And as Jesus lifted that third cup, the cup of redemption, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant which is shed for you. This is recognition that by his stripes you were healed, that he became the curse for you and poverty has been taken away from your life, that you are healthier 
you are wealthier and will continue to be healthier and wealthier because he has broken Pharaoh's grip on your life. You are set free, like the Israelites, to go to your inheritance, to go receive the promise. So would you join with me? Take communion right now. You are free. You are healthy. You are wealthy. You might not see it yet, but God has done it in Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Take communion. Thank you, Father. <clears throat> Thank you, Father. The blood of the Lamb has set us free from sin, sickness, and the power of Satan. We are forever grateful in Jesus' name. Let's go forth, church, and inherit the promise of the Father. Amen. God bless you.